Welcome to Heart and Stroke Presents Healthcare Insights During COVID-19, a podcast series with leading healthcare experts in cardiac and stroke care. Each week, we bring you the latest updates from the COVID-19 frontlines. Leading experts in stroke, cardiac, and vascular cognitive impairment share their insights into how systems of care are adapting to the pandemic and how these systems may change in the future. Our guest today is Dr. Harindra Wajasundara, who has joined me to share his perspective on the challenges facing cardiac systems during COVID-19. Dr. Wajasundara is an interventional cardiologist, clinician scientist at the Sunnybrook Health Sciences Centre, associate professor of medicine at the University of Toronto, adjunct scientist at the Institute for Clinical Evaluative Sciences, and CADETH's VP of Medical Devices and Clinical Interventions. So Harindra, first off, I know your role has been quite demanding as late, and I know you just stepped out of the cath lab, so I just want to say a big thank you for participating today. How are you doing? I'm doing very well, uh, Natalie. Thank you very much for inviting me. So you've been leading much of the epidemiological modeling on COVID-19, and you've been involved in system planning as well. Can you share what COVID-19's main effects have been on our cardiac systems of care? Great question. I'll start with the disclosure that I'm not a public health expert. And so really the last two months has been a very steep learning curve, interacting very closely with people who are. And I've learned a number of key lessons from all of this. The first is that in a pandemic response, one must really be prepared for what the situation may look like in the short term and not solely react to events as they happen on the ground, because if you do, it's too late. And to that end, modeling has been a key component of the pandemic response. And I interacted closely uh, with the groups that are providing decision makers, modeling to understand the epidemiology of COVID-19, and also on resource uses. And the key thing about modeling is it's not meant to be able to be the truth about the future, but rather to give a credible envelope of what the worst case and best case scenarios may look like so that important decisions can be made today. And that led to the critical decisions about public health interventions, such as closing of schools, social distancing, and in acute care for developing a surge of ICU ventilator and ward resources. On the cardiac side, I've been very involved in trying to provide that type of modeling to decision makers on the cardiovascular side so that their policy are also made in the context of what the COVID projections may look like and understanding what the possible consequences of those policy decisions are over the next few days and weeks. And I think the the good news is that through all of this, we've we've avoided catastrophe, uh, really the overwhelming of the healthcare system that's been seen in in other jurisdictions. Good news is that decision makers have been very nimble. Uh, They've acted on those predictions and those have worked to flatten the curve. Uh, On the cardiac side, really the same same holes. Uh, Programs deserve a lot of credit for curtailing their activity, redeploying those resources, beds or staff, and probably most importantly, not stopping care, Uh, the switch to, to virtual care specifically. I want to talk about virtual care, but before we get there, I just want to touch on the situation in LTC because it's it's not something that we predicted. And what impact has it had on acute settings? The LTC population really represents clearly 
an area where the system hasn't worked as well. Uh, and in fact, has, has, you know, some could argue has failed these very vulnerable patients. And now many are, are involved in trying to mitigate that situation. How it's impacted things in the acute care, which is much of my focus, uh, certainly my focus from the cardiac standpoint, is that it has made some of the predictions about the resource needs for COVID-19 patients more difficult because some of those patients are coming to acute care. Their length of stays are longer than a patient who uh, acquires COVID-19 infections from the community. Also, it's important to recognize that the curtailing of other activities, such as cardiac and cancer, is not because solely that physical space has been redeployed, beds or ICU beds, uh, but also that our staff have, that I think it is uh, a great credit to many acute care hospitals that they have asked for volunteers from their staff or have redeployed that sta those staff to the long-term care facilities in their vicinity so that they can, they can help and they can serve. That is important and it is needed. Uh, however, that also impacts the human resources that are available to then think about the recovery phase and when we can restart some of the uh, cardiac and other activity that we have really put on a halt for the last few weeks. Yeah, so let's let's talk about that a little bit. Uh, I think most Canadians are just daydreaming about seeing their friends and going to a park, but meanwhile, institutions and clinicians and cardiac teams across Canada are really starting to consider what the, the clinical activity recovery phase. And I know this is incredibly complex and you touched on some of the things that, uh, that we need to consider um, in relation to human resources. But what are some of the other things that we need to consider um, as we approach this phase? And how do we do that equitably? Natalie, this is an incredibly important uh, question and one that thankfully many people are considering uh, this recovery phase. Um, you know, I, I think it would be accurate to describe that what we've been doing for the last now almost two months has been holding back this tidal wave of urgent non-COVID-19 patients. Um, and there has been a price for this. Our, our modeling suggests that in the, in the cardiac realm, the price is a modest one, but it is real. And only with time we'll be able to tell the true cost in terms of patients' morbidity or mortality from having their care delayed. The key point, I think, is that we must act with the same urgency and planning and sense of purpose that we did in the initial crisis phase of the COVID-19 pandemic in mid-March, where there was very rapid redeployment of resources. We need to do the same now in May for that recovery phase because those patients who have been waiting have that same sense of urgency. Um, you know, I. I think it is likely that we will see COVID-19 infections for some time, that that is a byproduct of successfully flattening this curve. So it really won't be back to business as usual, but rather a system that has to be nimble and accommodate the reality of ongoing COVID patients, the occasional surge, 
while at the same time not compromising care for cardiac patients, for cancer patients, and for really all the others. I think the, the specifics of how that recovery will look will be a local phenomenon, and it'll be different from one hospital to another, from one jurisdiction to another. But there are a number of key principles that we should ensure. So you mentioned one, which is equity, that age, geography, socioeconomic status, things that we've always been concerned about in so far as disparities of care. We have to ensure that in this recovery phase, that those things are maintained, that there is equity across those. We must have a fair process because we can't treat everybody all at once. So it must be a fair, transparent process about what we're doing why, and why we're doing it. What, where modeling helps is in the, the concept of proportionality, that as we decide on one type of measure to help one group of patients, for example, COVID-19 patients, we must not compromise another. And modeling helps us do this because that requires balancing multiple trade-offs. There aren't any easy answers to this, and sometimes it is very difficult to see how one trade, one trade-off balances against another. And mod modeling helps put all of those scenarios forward in a very explicit way. Um, I think it's critical for us to learn from this first uh, wave that there's been many positives. But it is important for us to use modeling and other means to understand what is a reasonable buffer for that care for COVID-19 surges so that we don't have to completely stop the system again. Um, you know, it, it really, to reinforce, I think it's a positive story and credit is due to many people. But we have to learn from this, uh, understand the areas that we did well, the areas that we can improve so that we're better than the next wave. This is a good news story where we're at right now. We, we didn't see the surge that we expected. And I think that there's probably more good news that we could talk about. Um, clinical care, obviously, post-COVID will be quite different compared to pre-COVID. And so I'd kind of like to end this conversation maybe on a hopeful note by discussing some of the positive changes we might see going forward. I think it's, it's critical always to try to look for the silver linings. Um, uh, in, a, in a crisis like this. Um, and, I'm, and I'm sure, you know, both in professional life and personal life, there are many that one can find. Professionally, as a, as a care provider, uh, much of my work, especially at CADETH over the last few years, has been on, on virtual care, on trying to understand why it has been so difficult to do virtual care in this country. <laughs> and it's true we've been advocating it for so long <laughs> I mean you know it is a silver lining that in a matter of yeah. days essentially the entire Canadian <laughs> healthcare system became virtual and it is it is forcing people out of their comfort zone um but you know we've been able to, we've been able to provide care to people and some of them really like it and I hope certainly in my own practice, that I will retain some part of that because some of it is really good, the virtual care. Uh, the second part is uh, another focus of my policy work has been trying to understand uh, overuse and so choosing wisely and other groups like that, which 
uh, who I've interacted with, mm-hmm. one of the fundamental things that they're looking at is overuse, that there are some things that we do that we no longer need to, uh, some things that are harmful, some things that are just unnecessary, and some things that are inappropriate. And one of the silver linings of having you know, so dramatically curtailed our capacity is that it has really forced us to think deeply about which patients do we need to treat. And there is no doubt that there are a lot of patients that need treatment that we have delayed. However, there also is a sizable proportion of patients who were referred for diagnostic tests, sometimes for treatments, that as we've taken that second look and thought a bit deeply about it, they didn't really need it to begin with. And I hope a silver lining that comes out of this new, it's not really post-COVID-19, it'll be a, po- it'll be a COVID-19 <laughs> world True. and it'll be with us for a while, is that perhaps Absolutely. it will be that catalyst that the system so needed to force us to really face the the issue of overuse of testing, overuse of some therapies that now we can't. So we've had to ensure that the patients who are getting it are the ones who really need it. Uh, And that's not to say that there aren't still delays and there's a buildup of patients. There certainly is, but it is, it, there is no doubt that having that more discerning eye, a higher threshold, uh, has led to has led to some good things in the sense that some of that overuse has been reduced. Yeah, I think about as as an example, some of our most vulnerable patients would be the heart failure population, and it is Heart Failure Awareness Week. And just limiting um, the the amount of visits that they have to make, and doing telemonitoring at home and virtual care, like you like you had mentioned. So there's there's lots of amazing things that are going to help serve people, um, and people that are living in remote areas as well is something we've been you know tackling for a long time. So on that note, Harinda, I just want to say thank you so much for sharing your insights with us today, and for all that you and your team are doing and teams across the country are doing to provide high quality care. Is there anything in closing you want to share with your colleagues across the country? Well, thank you very much for uh, the invitation and the opportunity to speak, uh, you know, on this topic that really uh, is very dear uh, to me. Um, you know, the, the statement that I would say to my colleagues is, you know, as as trying as this time has been and frantic, um, you know, there has never been a time that I have been you know, as proud of my colleagues, uh, the people that I work with, uh, as I have been over the last few weeks. It has really been an opportunity to see how so many people have been able to get out of their comfort zones and really rise up um, in this hopefully once in a lifetime crisis. Yeah, you, you guys truly are heroes. It's, it's been absolutely remarkable watching this happen. Thank you so much for your time. Have a great week. On behalf of Heart and Stroke, thanks for listening to this episode of Healthcare Insights during COVID-19. Stay tuned for our next episode where we talk with leading experts about how systems of care have adapted to meet the needs of people and families living with vascular cognitive impairment. 
In the meantime, find resources on COVID-19 and cardiovascular health at heartandstroke.ca backslash coronavirus. Take good care.